we'll start reading in verse 1, and I will go through to verse 16. Acts chapter 24, starting in verse 1. And after five days, Ananias, the high priest, ascended with the elders and with a certain orator named Tertullus, who informed the governor against Paul. And when he was called forth, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Seeing that we, uh, that by thee we enjoy great quietness, and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Notwithstanding that I be not further tedious unto thee, I pray thee that thou wouldst hear us, of thy clemency a few words. For we have found this man, meaning Paul, a pestilent fellow, and a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, who also hath gone about to profane the temple, whom we took and would have judged according to our law. But the chief captain Lysias came upon us and with great violence took him away out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come unto thee, by examining of whom thyself mayest take knowledge of all these things, whereof we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, saying that these things were so. Then Paul, after that the governor had beckoned unto him to speak, answered, Forasmuch as I know that thou hast been a many years a judge unto this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself, because that thou mayest understand that there are yet but twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And they neither found me in the temple, disputing with any man, neither raising up the people, neither in the synagogues, nor in the city, Neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. But this I confess to you, that after the way which they call hearsay, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all the things were written in the law and in the prophets, and have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there should be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust, and herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. Amen. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, again we praise you again for this, uh, this time on Sunday where we're able to worship you and come and uh, offer prayers and supplications with thanksgiving to you and also to study your precious word. And we thank you for this this chapter here, which speaks of Paul's defense towards these accusers. And I hope and pray that we would be able to listen to what you had, would have us uh, revealed in your precious word here, and that we can apply these things to our daily lives and walk uh, more joyfully uh, with you. And again, we praise you and thank you in the name of Lord Jesus. Amen. Um, I, I wanted first to say that uh, if anyone has a Schofield Bible, 
King James Version. I think it's a Schofield Version 3. Mine is done. <laughs> I have uh, the midsection here, and this is actually a, a good thing. You know, you need to, um, but I have so many notes, and as Eric Broadbent once said, that I have the most unique filing system of my Bible. I've, I've gone through probably stacks of Post-it notes, and I've used them for uh, my notes. So if you have a Schofield Bible that you're not using, <laughs> I will use it. But after 13 years, I was concerned I would not be able to place it here because the middle section has been done in for. So, <laughs> but this is a this is a good thing because um, as we read the Word and we study it and we take notes in it and uh, we really slowly begin to, um, I know in my own walk slowly. Um, you know, my, my walk with the Lord was not all that good in the beginning, I can say, because, of course, sin nature, and uh, not that I, I am sinless, um, but I know that the Lord, I am sinning less in his word by daily reading um, and note-taking and just thoughts that I have and all that sort of thing really has invaded my heart and my soul. So I just uh, am so thankful. For that, but okay. So let's get on to our, our study here now. Just a uh, just a three um, section outline here. I'm just going to talk about the context where we're um, what we're looking at here. Uh, second is going to be looking at um, sort of the exegesis. We're going to look at it and look verse by verse and see uh, the things that we can glean from this. And thirdly, uh, application and how we can apply these things um, to our lives. And I am going to focus a lot on uh, the law um, and how Paul is being judged by the law. And specifically, he's being, you know, look at it this way, but there are truly three laws that are going on here. You have the law of the Romans, uh, the judgment of the Romans. You have the judgment of the Jews or the law of Israel, which we'll see um, uh, in a moment, and then a third law, which Paul is obeying. And so we as believers would obey that, that law as well. So um, so let's uh, get started here. So the context is we know that Paul is now, uh, we had that great uh, Thursday night study where we looked at uh, Paul being brought from Jerusalem to uh, Caesarea. And Caesarea was um, sort of Herod's uh, the ruler uh, of Judea at the time, Herod, he had this beautiful um, palace and port on the coast of the Mediterranean. Now, the reason why that there was a port, and it was a man-made port, and if you look at old um, satellite images of this, you can actually see the port going out into the Mediterranean Sea, the stone walls going out, and because that was along the Mediterranean in Israel, that was the only quote-unquote deep water port that they had in Israel. So if you were taking on goods um, or you're transporting things back and forth across the Mediterranean, Herod's palace at Caesarea was that place that you would go to um, because it, the way Herod extended it out into the Mediterranean, you had a, a deep water port. Uh, so that's a little bit there. So that's why there was a palace there. There was, uh, and, and the Roman, um, uh, governor at the time here, Felix, um, had his residency there. 
Um, and of course, Herod called it Caesarea in, in uh, honor of the Roman king, Caesar. So um, that's sort of the kind. So we had this whole discussion last week uh, on Thursday about uh, Lysias, who actually took Paul away from the mob and uh, actually found when he realizes that Paul was a Roman citizen and the benefits uh, or the he did not want Paul to fall into evil hands, knowing that he was a Roman citizen because there would be, um, uh, Lysias would be judged if, if Paul something happened to Paul being a Roman citizen. So he had this huge, almost army that came forth and brought him to Caesarea. So Paul is there before Felix and uh, in, in, on the grounds there and awaiting his accusers to come from Jerusalem uh, and to make their case against Paul. So that is sort of uh, the, the, the context here. So it's very interesting to note, as just as an overview, we will note that um, the Jews do not bring one of their own to accuse Paul. Now, um, if they understood Roman law, um, maybe... Uh, Maybe they didn't have anyone to, that understood Roman law or whatnot, but the, the relationship between the Jews and the, and the Romans were, were very tight. I mean, we even have that, that portion in, in John, right? Uh, John, I think it's uh, uh, 18, where um, Herod and Pontius Pilate all of a sudden became friends, right, after, after they uh, uh, allowed Christ to be crucified. So there was that happiness between them. So there was, the, there was a relationship between the Jewish leadership and the Roman, Romans there. But it's very important, as I, just as an overview in the context here, that the Jews did not bring their own judge advocate, so to speak. They didn't bring a lawyer of the Jews there, but they brought a man by Tertullus who was um, uh, Roman. Now, is that uh, important? Is that is? I think it's just something that to take note of, that the Jews did not go forth presenting their case. They had someone else do it for them. Now, it could be that the reason why this was done is because Tertullus um, and Felix spoke Latin, and if that is the case, maybe the Jews did not understand Latin. But I would say this: if that is the case, Paul makes his defense in Latin which is very interesting uh, concerning the fact that we know that Paul could speak Hebrew, of course, Hebrew and Greek. And if this is the case, he could also speak Latin, which in the mindset of people today, especially um, uh, skeptics and uh, others who believe that people at this day were, were ignorant and uh, almost childlike, but they are not. Paul could speak three languages and the three main languages of his day. So it's very important for us to understand that we're not dealing with misfits or anything like that. We're dealing with highly intelligent people who understood the meaning of law and um, the respect of people. All right, so that, that gives us a, sort of a little bit of a, a, a more context here. So let's go through the, accus uh, uh, the accusation here. So Tertullus brings forth this accusation. Of course, he begins his, his um, speech by praising Felix. 
And I will share this with you as we go through this. Look at what he said. The very first thing that he says here in verse 2, it says, Seeing that we, by you, right, by thee, meaning Felix, we enjoy great quietness. That means we enjoy great peace as a people in Israel. If there's one thing that we have learned through the study of Acts is that the state of Israel was not at peace. Right? We had many uh, instances uh, that we talked about that there were many revolts that came up, many people that proclaimed themselves to be Messiah or uh, others that were sort of quote-unquote rabble-rousers uh, that came up that the Romans had to put down or uh, the Jews themselves had to put down. So this whole, there is no, there is no peace within the state of Israel. Um, maybe for the Sanhedrin and others that, that look at this and the, maybe the relationship between uh, the Sanhedrin, that uh, Jewish council, and the Roman authorities, maybe there was peace, but within Israel itself, there is no peace. And so much so that 10 years after this fact, that the temple would be destroyed. So to say that there is peace and that there is, uh, uh, men are bringing peace to the nation, if it is, it's only on a surface level. There's no depth to the peace that they have. So you can say that maybe Tertullus is not lying necessarily, um, but really that's a half-truth. Okay, that being said, so he says that there's very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence. So we don't, I don't fully understand any, uh, uh, I don't, uh, any reading that I've done on Felix, I, I don't uh, glean that from any, any text that I've read or seen what, what things that Felix has done, but, but again, it's sort of um, uh, uh, Tertullus is sort of uh, smoothing the waters here and actually lifting, lifting Felix up. Um, so they, he says in verse 3, with most, uh, we thank it always, most places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Um, and then he says, I don't want to be any more tedious. I don't want to have any more platitudes towards you, so I'm going to get into my, my, um, my accusation towards Paul. So the very first thing that he says here about Paul is verse 5. We have found this man to be a pestilent fellow. That's the very first thing. Now, in a court of law, this would be considered an ad hominem argument, meaning that it's against the man, right? It's an argument against him, but that there's no proof. Like you could say that you don't like someone because, you know, you feel like they're a bad man. Well, okay. What proof do you have that there's a bad man? So notice here that there's, there's no proof that Paul is, a, he doesn't offer anything to say that he's a pestilent Fellow. Now, what does a pestilent, what does the term pestilent mean? Does anyone have an idea as to what the term pestilent mean? Means? Well, the first part of that is pest. <laughs> right. <laughs> Very good. That's right. It's it's like a fly that flies around you, and you're trying to swat it away, and it won't it won't leave you alone. Right. 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 But and the term pestilence, we we understand that that's a, a great thing. It's a disease. Right. Um, Vine's dictionary says that it's a um, it's a deadly infectious malady. So the mere fact is that Tertullus here is saying that Paul the apostle is a deadly infectious malady. 
also a fly that flies around that you can't, that he won't just go away. But what evidence is there? There's none. Okay. So we go on to the next accusation. He is a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world. Okay. So what is a mover of sedition? What is that? What does that term sedition mean? He's a troublemaker. That's right. Sedition means actually that he's causing insurrection. So he's, he's a mover. He's one that is sort of on that chessboard and moving these pieces around and causing insurrection all across the Jewish world at the time. And is there evidence for that? Tertullus doesn't bring out anything about that. Okay. Um, and another way of saying this, just as a, as a note here I, I have, is that he's stirring up passions among people. So there's feelings and passions that are being stirred up by what Paul is saying. Now what Paul is saying, as we know and we read throughout Acts, that he's really not saying the temple is wrong, he's not saying that Jewish customs and Jewish beliefs are wrong, all that he's saying is, right, Jesus is the Messiah. And that is causing up stirring up. Now, when you stir up passions and, and feelings with people, um, it could mean two things. One, they're totally rejecting you, and they don't want to hear what you have to say. Or secondly, maybe they're convicted. That they understand that Jesus is the Messiah. And by that conviction, they're you know, they don't know how to handle their, their feelings and whatnot. So whether it be he's rising up feelings and uh, passions among the people, or whether he's causing insurrections, again, the Roman lawyer here doesn't bring out any evidence. And the third thing that he brings out is that he is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, I will say this, it's very important that Tertullus brings out this whole idea of the Nazarenes. We know that the term Christian at this time was being used to describe the people that believed in Jesus of Nazareth, right, as the Messiah. So they would say, we understand that in Antioch, right, they were first called Christians. So this whole idea of them being called Christians is, uh, was quite prevalent. So it's very important to note that by Tertullus here saying that he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, it means that he is, uh, that Tertullus is bringing out this fact that he's, a, he's a, uh, of the Nazarenes. He does not want to say that he is a uh, ringleader of the sect of the Christians, right? That would, that would demonstrate the fact that they are identifying Jesus as a Messiah, or as the Messiah. And they don't want to bring out that fact. So it's very important they, they just bring out the fact that he's, that he's, he's leading as a sect of Nazarenes. As one, one person just says, says um, he used the term, uh, if you use the term Christian, it might imply their recognition of Jesus of Nazareth as the son of David, as the Messiah coming so they wanted to avoid that so a lot of times when people say things or they uh, uh, when they when they talk to you or when you read texts like this it's very important not necessarily what they said but what they're not saying 
um, and how they interpret and use different words to describe what they're trying to really say. So they don't want to say Christians or a sect of the Christians, but Nazarenes. But it's very important. It says ringleader, um, that Paul is a ringleader. That term ringleader is a, basically a Roman military term, which means the one who stands in front. Uh, Roman military had where you would, you would have a line of soldiers, um, and the formation of, of those soldiers was such that you had someone that stood in front. And so you had the, the army behind you, but he was the one in front of the army leading it ahead. So Paul was that person. Um, basically, it, it's a term that means it's a, it's a soldier who stands in the first rank. And it's only used here in the New Testament, but it has that whole idea that he is the first rank. He is the one leading the charge. Okay. Again, it's just it's an accusation. No evidence that 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 shares that. Um, so in verse six, another accusation. The fourth accusation is that he has gone about to profane the temple, who we took and would have judged according to our law. Now the judge, if they had judged according to their law, it would have meant death, right, to the to the Jewish leaders. But it says that he had gone about to profane the temple. It's very important. I don't know if anyone has a, a different translation than the King James. But if you read the New King James, I believe, or the New American Standard Bible, it would say, who almost profaned the temple. So it's almost like they were the thought police saying that he was going to profane the temple, so we wanted to arrest him and then kill him for almost profaning the temple. Right? I, I, I don't understand if that would even be brought up in a court of law, if that could even be brought up in a court of law, to say that you almost did this, so therefore we're going to judge you for doing it. It just doesn't make it. Logically, right? In Isaiah chapter 1, right, God says, come, let us reason together, right? So there's this whole idea that we as Christians are reasonable, rational, you know, <laughs> things don't uh, fall. Um, we don't make judgments like this, but in this court of law, they're saying that he almost did these things, so therefore we want to judge him and kill him for it. So in verse 7, then it says, but the chief captain Lysias came upon us, and with great violence took him away out of our hands. Now, again, rational, logical, reading the text, we can say that the only group that was really violent was the mob. Right? Lysias came in, right, grabbed Paul and brought him out. Well, actually, he kicked and <laughs> he kicked and uh, uh, beat up Paul, right, because he just didn't know what was going on until Paul said that he was a Roman citizen. Uh, but the mere fact is that the people that were doing violence against Paul or wanted to do violence was, was the J Jewish mob. Okay, so that's sort of a half-truth there, and maybe not even uh, the truth. Um, verse 8 says, Commanding his accusers to come unto thee by examining whom thyself mayest take knowledge of all these things whereof we accuse him. So basically saying that Lysias took him, brought him here, and now we're commanded to come here and make this accusation uh, before Felix. Uh, and so the Jews also assented, saying that all these things were so. 
Now, we get into Paul's, Paul's defense. Paul's defense here is made up of two sections. One is the defense of himself, and the second is the defense of his faith. Okay. So, verse 11 through 13 is the defense of himself. Because um, I know in, in many times we look at missionaries and when they have to defend uh, themselves. We look at this whole idea that um, we have missionaries out there, we have a persecuted church out there, they're defending the way that they're handling themselves. And Paul would say in conclusion and almost an exclamation mark on his whole entire life, he says that I have a, in verse 6, and I have a conscience void of offense toward God and towards men. There is nothing that a human government, a human legal system can charge me with. I've done nothing. So I'm void of offense towards God and towards men. But here in verse, in verse 11, now Paul in verse 10, he has this little accolades towards uh, Felix, not as, um, it's sort of that uh, Felix has been a judge, and Paul is acknowledging that Felix has been a judge of the nation, uh, and he just acknowledges that. And then he says, I cheerfully, joyfully, I desire to happily defend myself. So in verse 11, he says, you may understand that there are but 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. So it's been 12 days since he was, uh, went up to uh, worship in, verse, in chapter uh, 21, where he was first, first taken. And then verse 12, they didn't find, so in accusation, in, in, in uh, defense of what Tertullus' accusation is, he says in verse 11, uh, I'm sorry, in verse 12, they didn't find me in the temple, disputing with any man, nor raising up the people, either in the synagogues or in the city. Verse 13, and neither can they prove these things which they now accuse me. There is no evidence against these charges. Right? Paul can honestly say, I didn't dispute anyone. I wasn't profane. I wasn't even in the temple. Right? And I wasn't doing anything that would raise up the people. So is his, in his conclusion, I mean, it's a very short conclusion, there is no evidence. So in terms of pointing at me as a pestilent fellow, as a mover of sedition, as a ringleader of the Nazarenes, there is no evidence. But Paul goes on to say, Paul's not done, he says in verse 14, but I will confess to you this. The way that they call hearsay is this. I worship the God of my fathers, believing all the things written in the law and the prophets. I have hope towards God, in verse 15, which they themselves allow. So what they are calling, what the Jews and the Roman uh, lawyer that they have, are accusing, they're accusing Paul of hearsay. And Paul can honestly say, and rightfully say, I worship the God of my fathers, believing everything that was written in the Law and the Prophets. I have hope towards God, which they themselves allow. Right? So when looking at the Jewish leadership there, he can say, they believe in these things. They believe in the Law and the Prophets. I'm just, I'm just explaining that to, to my brethren. And then he says, I have hope towards God, 
that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. And that is the hearsay. Now we know, we understand that when Paul, in the previous chapter, uh, when we turn there in verse uh, chapter 23, Paul will say, now he's before the Sanhedrin, and we know the Sanhedrin council is made up of two sects of the Jews. The Sanhedrin, uh, I'm sorry, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, right? Uh, and what, what do the Sadducees believe? Does anyone have an idea? Remember what the Sadducees believe? I don't know. Maybe we didn't cover it. They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in angels. Okay? But what do the Pharisees believe? The exact opposite, right? They believe in those things. And Paul would say, I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisees. So he would, he would say that he agrees with the Pharisees. So standing before the Sanhedrin council, in chapter 23, verse 1, he says, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And what does the high priest Ananias do? <laughs> Smacks him against the face. Right? And then Paul calls him this whitewashed wall, which is a very interesting term. I won't share anything with you about that. But basically, he can say, in verse 6, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am called into question to this day. Right? And of course, that caused a dissension between the Pharisees and uh, the Sadducees. So not even within that Jewish council was there unity in terms of uh, what Paul was saying. But the Pharisees said, well, he believes in the resurrection of the dead, right? which we hold true. So to hold Paul for that, what he's sharing, they, they just, you can see now, um, if I can now take it to the next level and look at Jewish law at the day, we can see then that the Jewish leadership, the high priests, just wanted Paul away. They just wanted him gone. And the best way to do it was to kill him. Right, just and that, that would just, that would just go against that would just that would just make everything better, but we know that the Sanhedrin Council was made up of some made up of a, of a wise man who might have been alive at this day. Uh, his name was Gamaliel, and we learned about this man Gamaliel back in Acts chapter five. Do we remember what what he said at that time uh, when he had John and and uh, Peter? Uh, they, they, they had John and Peter uh, accused and in, in prison. What is, and Gamaliel says, if it is of God, it will continue. <laughs> if it's not of God, it will die out. Right? But Gamaliel says, it will, if it is of God, it persists. So even that prophecy, if I can say so, uh, by Gamaliel was one in which uh, it hasn't gone away to this day. And so we can say that it is, it is of God. But the Jewish leadership at the day really did not want this thing to, to endure. And especially one of their own, Paul, who was a member, maybe not a member of the council, but he was very ingrained in, in the, uh, the council and the Jewish leadership. He was trained by Gamaliel. And uh, we understand that um, it might have been something of an offense that he actually was proclaiming Christ as the Messiah. Or Jesus as the Messiah. 
Um, just a little aside here, um, in terms of uh, dates and whatnot, uh, does anyone know when uh, Ananias, the high priest, was actually the high priest of Israel at the time? Um, the, everything that I could read said that he was, uh, he was a high priest between 47 and 52 A.D., um, which means, according to my Bible here, it puts this time period at 60 A.D., which would mean, well, the, the dates in my Bible are not uh, inspired, of course, but we understand that if it was Ananias was high priest in 52 A.D., that sets things back eight years and much closer to the time frame of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Right, So it, it's not eight years in the future, but it's eight years closer to that time period, which gives us an idea as to sort of the authenticity, more evidence towards the authenticity of, of the biblical narrative. Because we know these men, like Ananias, existed. He was high priest during a certain period of time. And Luke, the great physician, puts him in this time period around 52 A.D., which again is, is a sort of a remarkable thing if you're looking at timelines and when things are out. Um, so that's just a little aside. So I, I want to take, a, every time we have remaining, is looking at this whole idea of Jewish civil law, Roman civil law, and the law that we all uh, obey here as Christians. So I just want to talk a little bit about Roman court of civil laws uh, they're very much in line with what we see. So uh, we can see that the predecessor uh, to our own legal system today is the Roman civil law. And the Roman civil law said this, is that um, uh, basically in a civil court like this, that a man's religious belief basically were irrelevant unless they conflicted with the laws of the state. So um, knowing Rome, they had... Uh, as an old Roman historian would say, they had a thousand deities for a thousand streams. Um, it meant that uh, there was many deities out there in the, in the Roman system, but if those beliefs conflicted with the state, then, then they, would have, they would have issue with that. But if they were in line with the state, then we, um, we can see that uh, then they were uh, a religio- um, licita, a legal, a legal religion. Um, it says here that Felix was more or less a judge, so he had the law of a, of a magistrate, uh, a judge, someone that would um, enforce Roman law. Um, he didn't necessarily could, um, though he had command over those Roman legions there, so he could exact uh, discipline when, when needed. But he was basically saying between two parties, who is right and who is wrong. So it was up to him to determine that. Um, and so these, these Roman governors had that, had that authority. Um, basically, in any civil, civil law, you just couldn't say, this man has done this, he's committed these crimes, he should be punished. There had to be specific evidence. So the prosecutor, which we've talked about in terms of Tertullus here, had to present definite charges with evidence. And we see that, that nothing happened. Also, the accuser, um, 
the person who was the accused had to be present in the court. So we have that even today. If, you, if someone is going to accuse you of something, you want to stand before an impartial judge to say um, and, and actually to refute what those accusations are and then the judge being unbiased uh, could, make, could make the judge. Uh, could make the judgment. So, that being said here, uh, we revert back to Roman law and any type of human government, whether it be Roman law, uh, the United States here, um, and it's very pointed that we talk about uh, this in terms of human government because we know it's as, it can never be perfect, right? Um, it can never be uh, equitable, Though they, they try, it can never be just. Um, because even here, if we look at the end of the chapter, it says um, uh, in verse 26, it says that Felix had him bound, even though there's no, there's no defense, there's no uh, evidence here or anything like that, Felix had him bound. Why? Because he had hoped, in verse 26, that money should have been given to him. Right? So even though Paul, there's no, there's no accusation against him that, that can stand, there's no evidence against him, well, Felix is going to keep him in prison because he wants money. Right? And also, in verse 26, uh, it says here, um, I'm sorry, in verse 27, so after two years, Festus comes in, um, and Felix willing to show the Jews a pleasure left Paul bound. So after two years, so Paul was just saying, hey, you, you know, for 12 days I've been, I've been in prison here. Well, it's two years more. Because why? Because either he wasn't getting his money, and secondly, um, that he wanted to show the Jews pleasure. Right? So this brings us into this whole idea of human government and human, it can never, human law, human government, can never deal with with the sin issue, right? So even though Felix was the judge at this time, he was still bound by human passions and human frailty, human greed, and uh, human desire to please, and human power to please uh, others. So that is the failure of human government. It can say that murder is wrong. It can say that... Um, you know, you can't, uh, uh, I, there's an ordinance in my town where I can't run my lawnmower before 9 a.m. You know, and if I were to do that, there would be a fine or a fee or something like that. Um, but that's taken, you know, from one extreme to the other. But it cannot, it tries to regulate human, human interaction. It tries to regulate um, uh, human interactions in such a way that, um, that there's peace and happiness and whatnot, but bottom line is it can never deal with the sin issue. That my needs, I desire my needs to come above your needs, and who's looking out for me, so I have to look out for myself. It's just this whole idea of uh, human sin, human greed, human frailties. The law can never lead or to correct those things. It just can't. Now, the Jews, on the other hand, that's what the law was for, correct? That the law was a school teacher to lead us to Christ, right? That's what Paul would say. 
But I want to share one thing uh, with you, if we can go to Leviticus. And Leviticus um, is basically, uh, was written, and uh, one time it was, it was said to me, what is, what is the book, what is, what is the, uh, the book in the, uh, in the Bible in which God speaks the most? Right, and I said, well, gee, you know, maybe it's a, John, maybe it's uh, Genesis, but it's in fact Leviticus. Because here it says, and the Lord says, boom, and it goes on for pages about what the Lord, what the Lord says. But I want to specifically talk about the law in terms of the Jewish. So we looked at the Roman law, we look, we're going to look at the Jewish law. So Leviticus number, uh, chapter 19 says this. Um, let me just make sure my notation is correct. Okay. Leviticus 19, starting in verse 15. Now, this is the law of Moses. See, it's just not the Ten Commandments, right? This is the law of Moses. So when they, when they speak of, um, when Paul would say that I obey everything from the law and the prophets, he can look back at Leviticus, which is sort of the book of the law, the book of the Levites. Right. So it says here, you shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. Leviticus 19, chapter, uh, chapter 19, verse 15. You shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. You shall not respect the person of the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty, but in righteousness shall judge thy neighbor. When you look at, you are not to say, this person is mighty and wealthy, so therefore they get a pass for doing something versus someone that is poor and lowly. No. Leviticus chapter 20 would say, weigh everything in equal scales. Right? And so, on, even on our, um, uh, the old, old, old Bailey building in London, Right? There's, a, there's a woman that's blind, and what does she have in her hands? Scales. Right? Weighing everything, not according to your position, not according to your, your status in the government or in society, but in terms of truth. Right? What is the true fact here? And we're going to weigh that. Who is right and who is wrong? So then verse 16, it says, You shall not go as a talebearer among thy people, Neither shall you stand against the blood of thy neighbor, for I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in thine heart. You shall not in any wise rebuke your neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. Thou shalt not avenge nor bury any grudge against the children of the people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. So in this just brief passage, can we say that the Jews fulfilled that law? Just in this example. Obviously, we would say no. And it shows you how corrupt and how far removed from the God of their fathers they were, where the only accusation that they could make against Paul was that he was profaning the temple. So it was the temple that the Jews held in high regard. It was the Jews that they were worshiping 
as an idol. So in that, where they forgot that the law commanded them to love their neighbor as thyself, they utterly failed in that. Um, in Numbers 34 or 35, I think it's 30, 35, speaks of the cities of refuge. So it's, in, it's still in the books of Moses, right? This whole idea of cities of refuge. Do you, do you remember what the cities of refuge were for? Anyone? What? Do you remember what the cities of refuge were for? That's right. And then the, uh, the Levites who were in that city would then hold the court and say, was it, and then the accusers would come and, you would, and they would weigh everything in scales. Do we read anything about even something like that in the New Testament? How there was a city of refuge that Paul could go to. Right? Even that whole concept of having a city of refuge where you could do, if, something, if you did something wrong, by accident or whatever, you could go to a city where you would not be harmed until you were judged. Your accusers were there, the Levites would be the, the judge, and then you could defend yourself. We don't even hear about anything like that. So the whole idea that the Jewish leadership at this time was elevating the, the law, but they were missing the main point, and that is the love of the people that they were supposed to govern. They completely missed that. So the temple rituals, the temple uh, services that were done, which they thought was pleasing to God, offering up those sacrifices, but they forgot the mere fact is that they were supposed to support and protect uh, the people. And instead it became something that they held over the people if they did not do uh, certain things. So needless to say that the Jews at this time are failing in their, in their great commission, which is to what? Be a light unto the Gentiles. That the strangers, because they were supposed to remember that they were strangers in Egypt. right? And because they were strangers in Egypt, they now, if a stranger came into their midst, what were they to do? To bind them and kick them out? No, to show hospitality. Because they were strangers in a foreign land. So that whole concept, the Jews uh, completely forgot about, even at this time. So therefore, so we have the law of the Romans, the civil authority there, which we know that any human government cannot... Um, change uh, a person's character, no matter what the law says. It's very difficult to change, just by the administration of the law, to change someone's character. And the, the purpose of the law could never deal with someone's sin. And even here, with the, in the Jewish legal tradition, they have forgotten where they came from. And it's very interesting that it seems like, just as I, as I read you know, Roman law, and when the Romans, the pagans, had a better understanding of justice than the Jews did. 
Lastly, we as Christians are under a different law. So let's turn to Romans chapter 3 and find out what that law is. Romans chapter 3. So I'm going to start reading a chapter in verse 21. It says here, Romans 3, chapter, 20, uh, chapter 3, verse 21 says, Now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all them that believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Therefore, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believes in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. So we as Christians are under that law of faith, knowing that we are justified by the blood of Christ, that Christ took our sins, bore them on the cross of Calvary, that we are now free, and his righteousness that is in Christ, the perfect one, the holy one, has now been imputed into us. And therefore, we don't boast. We don't obey sort of the law of Moses or any of those laws, but we obey the law of faith. So let's continue in that thought. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Speaking of the fruits of the Spirit here. It says here, but the fruit, in verse 22, it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such law, against such things, there is no law. So to have joy and peace, long-suffering, gentleness, and to have that part of your character, to have it part of who you are as a Christian, the civil authorities, the Constitution of the United States cannot have any law against that. So that is who we are. Long-suffering, goodness, gentleness, love, joy, there can be no law against love. Right? So we have that whole idea of the law of faith, that we understand the, the principles of our faith are in Christ Jesus and what he did for us on the cross of Calvary. And because of that, we're, we're swept into this whole idea of love. Because love is a rare thing out there. We can have joy, we can have peace, we can 
be long-suffering now, rather than being stirred up with our passions and emotions, right, which we should not, um, we should somehow quell, not that passions and emotions are a negative thing, but the mere fact is that if we do get stirred up immediately with our passions and emotions, it takes us, takes us down a road that we really don't want to go down, go down. But we have long suffering towards one another. We're gentle. We're temperate. Because there's no law. What else? Leading forth in the next chapter. So we have this whole idea that we understand what our faith is about. We understand then that, that faith builds within us character. And that character gives us hope and peace. And it changes us by the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. That we, are, we are changed. And it says here in chapter 6 of Galatians, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyselves, lest you also be tempted. Right. Verse 2, bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So in, in this, we now have the law of Christ, which is specifically loving our neighbors as ourselves. We want to bear one another's burdens. I mean, that's why I'm so, when you look at something as simple as raking leaves for people, and knowing the burden that it lifted off those neighbors that we have is really a remarkable thing. And against which, doing something like that, there is no law. Can you imagine there being a law saying you can't rake your neighbor's yard? <laughs> I don't know. There might, who knows? <laughs> In human government, you might have something like that because it might be annoying for someone or something like that. Or maybe if a lot of Christians start doing this and all of a sudden the whole neighborhood gets their leaves raked, some government leader somewhere will say, well, we can't, we can't allow that anymore. But the mere fact is, is that by serving our neighbors, we're fulfilling the law of Christ. Um, so also, if I can just say one thing um, regarding this, whole idea of the, the law, weighing things in just balance is one of the reasons why the human government ultimately fails and ultimately um, um, doesn't go in the, the directions that we as believers want it to go into. We see the corruption in it. Um, we see um, the whole idea that, um, that there's failings within it. Um, it's because of this whole idea that it's not found, the foundation of it is not built on truth. We remember that, that whole idea in, in John chapter 18, uh, which I alluded to before. What is, what is Pilate, what is the last thing that Pilate ever says to Jesus? Right? Do we know from John chapter 18? What is truth? Right? Even, even Pilate was, you know, Jesus is, the truth is standing right in front of him. And Pilate said, what is truth? So even this whole idea of relativity and the, the idea that, that uh, there's no foundation for, for, for truth is actually a failing of government and human institutions. We also have this, this idea as well is that um, I, I can remember one of the things that the, one of the founders said, I think it was John Adams who said, this constitution 
that we have here. And again, I'm not trying to criticize the U.S. Constitution or uh, American uh, system of jurisprudence or anything like that. But um, he said that the, the, this Constitution, this country, is only for a religious and moral people. Once you have, once it goes beyond that, once people start pushing the bounds of it, which humans ultimately end up doing, right, it begins to break down. But I will say this, that we, no matter what government is instituted, no matter what um, system of jurisprudence we, we operate under, no matter what laws govern us, we have one law, and that is the law of Christ, who says that we love our neighbors as ourselves, we bear one another's burdens, we have joy, peace, happiness, against which, right, against doing anything that revolves around that. There is no law. So here Paul, when Paul is able to say back in Acts 24 that I have a conscience void of any offense toward God or for men, we can say because he is living this out in his own life. All right, so let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, again, we, we thank you for this land that we live in. We thank you for... Um, uh, just the ability that we have to come here and worship and to study your word together. We are just so thankful that um, in this land we are free to do so. And again, just as no matter whether we're Christians operating here in the United States or in some village in India or in, a, um, in the bush in Nigeria, that we all operate under one law, and that is the law of faith founded in the Lord Jesus Christ who suffered and died for us so that as we go about and bear one another's burdens and serve others in our community that we are fulfilling the law of Christ and against which there is no law. So again, we just praise you and thank you in the name of Lord Jesus.